It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with the award-winning journalists who cover the East End, do a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, the website 27east.com, and Express Magazine. My co-host is Bill Sutton. Uh, He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. Great to have you here. And always a uh, good panel. This week we have Alec Lewis, who's a staff writer at Riverhead Local. Hey, Alec. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, we have Christopher Gangemi, who's a staff writer at the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Chris. Hey there. Good to have you. And uh, we have Brian Cosgrove, who is the host of the magnificent afternoon ramble at WLIWFM. Brian, good to have you here. Good to be here. Good morning. So I want to start in Riverhead and Alec, I want to talk about uh, there have been a couple of fairly high profile incidents up there in the last couple of weeks uh, that are uh, racially motivated, it sounds like uh, it's caused a bit of a stir. But can you talk a little bit about those two incidents and, and remind people what happened? Sure. So last week, which uh, um, there were swastikas. Uh, found drawn on desks at a Riverhead High School at Riverhead High School in a classroom. Um, the school district administration opened an investigation into it, talked to some students that were that are known to sit at the desks in the classroom. And they also reached out to the uh, the Holocaust Memorial Intolerance Center in Nassau County for resources and support in the wake of that incident. Of course, swastika being a symbol of the Nazi party and um, used by neo-Nazis in the United States to terrorize minorities and Jewish people. Um, Then a few weeks back, there was a incident um, that was publicized by sort of a pinnacle of the black community in Riverhead, Robert Brown. He's the president of the East End Voter Coalition. Um, He grew up in Riverhead. Um, and his great grandchildren, his family said, was pushed down um, by some white teenagers. These are kids between the ages of five and seven. So we're talking little oh, kids that were pushed down um, in a playground, like right next to the football field at Pulaski Street School during a Riverhead football game. Their cousin it was actually is actually, I believe, the quarterback of the Riverhead football team. Mm-hmm. So they were there watching their cousin um, playing on the um, like the playground right there, and they were pushed down and called the N word. So, do you, this, do we do we know like the age of the people involved in in doing that? So that incident, there were two Riverhead students that were involved. Um, one is was a middle school student. The other is a high school student. And then there was a third person who was um, 18 years old wow. um, that was involved in this as well, who the school district officials describe as an out-of-district student. So um, not sure where they live or, or anything, but... The school district officials have said that that person who is an 18-year-old has been banned from district property um, and any future you know, football games, and that the students involved, the middle school and the high school student, are going to face consequences. But they say that privacy laws, student privacy laws, say they can't disclose those consequences. 
So that's sort of up in well, the air. But yeah, <laughs> actually, like in my opinion, I think they should they should have revealed this because uh, you know to maybe deter students from doing this in the future because you know, these are the consequences you get from for doing something like this. But the superintendent says they they can't legally do that. They've been advised that they can't legally do that. So they haven't. So anyway, this was brought up during a school board meeting a few weeks back by, as I said, Robert Brown was the great grandfather. He said, you know, there needs to be accountability for this. And this week, the Long Island, Easter Long Island branch of the NAACP went to a special school board meeting. And basically, they argued that um, the diversity plan and diversity, equity, inclusion plan that the district adopted had been sidelined by administration and replaced by um, sort of this five-year comprehensive plan. And um, the president of the Eastern Long Island branch, Lawrence Street, um, who is a local teacher. He works for BOCES. He used to be a teacher in the Riverhead Central School District. Um, and he was also on this task force that that helped create this plan, said, well, maybe these incidents could have been prevented if, you know, this equity plan was implemented, if, if the district, school district took this seriously. Um, you know, school district officials say that that the equity plan is adopted, that hasn't been something that has been sidelined. The superintendent says that this, uh, the next superintendent's day is actually gonna be completely devoted to diversity, equity, and inclusion um, as a subject matter um, for their superintendent's day. And- Was that, so, was that scheduled before or-, or uh, I mean, I'm again, not sure, sounds, but- sounds, sounds another, you know, sounds convenient. Yeah, it sounds convenient. I, you know, I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, but that's what he says. And so the superintendent and, and Larry street are going to, they say they're going to meet and talk about these incidents and, and talk about the DEI plan. Um, Alex, Alex, this is a tough, tough question. And I, you know, I think it probably will require more reporting. And I think it's the kind of thing that's a difficult question to answer. So I'm sorry if it put you on the spot a little bit, but in order, I, the thing that comes to mind to me is a lot of people might have the tendency to dismiss these incidents as individual incidents of mm -hmm. kids misbehaving, that, that it's just two incidents of kids doing things. Uh, that happen. Is there a concern that, mm -hmm. You know, two is a trend, and it suggests that. Um, is there any suggestion here that that Riverhead has a bigger problem? Um, that these are small incidents, perhaps, but they hint at maybe a bigger problem that needs to be addressed. That that at least needs to be taken seriously. So that's part of what the superintendent and sort of the board of education is saying is, well, we can't really control what people say. You know, sometimes people say stupid things. The superintendent said, you know, that there's a lot of behavior that's really been escalated and and um, like rude behavior that's exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, pe students are still coming out of that. They missed like, you know, a year and a half of in-person learning and social skills that they have developed. But 
you know, I can tell you, Joe, that as somebody who who went through the Riverhead school system and who attended Riverhead Middle School and Riverhead High School, um, that this these are not <laughs> incidents that are just they're just they're not isolated. out of the blue. Yeah, these are not these are not isolated incidents. I mean, you know, I I think it's like pretty um, fair to say that in general that the United States of America has a racism problem, and um, that Riverhead is no exception to that. And I'm the East and Long Island in general, and you know, uh, so. No, I I don't I mean, think these are the latest in a couple incidents in Riverhead, but over over the last few years there have been other incidences. Yeah, well, of course, and 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 these are only like it, something Larry Street said is well, these are the ones we heard of. How many mm-hmm. other incidents have occurred in in the Riverhead Central School District that we don't know about? That's and I think yeah, that's the worry. And I think that um, you know. I mean, if, if somebody goes to a board of education meeting and makes a big stink of something, um, you know, that gets attention. We didn't originally know about this incident that happened at the football field until Robert Brown came up to the board of education and said, you guys need to do something about this. We didn't hear about this. They didn't put out anything. They had put out during that week, like right after the board of education meeting had happened, um, like a reminder of the code of conduct for um, for sporting events that you can't say racial slurs, you can't, you know, it, that behavior of bias and prejudice behavior will not be tolerated in at sporting events. Um, but you know, I, I think the in the swastika incident, like the the school district has tried to get ahead of you know these things and and put the community on notice that. This has happened. If you're hearing rumors in the community, yes, that rumor is true, or, or you know that sort of thing. And because information spreads fast, especially among the school community, um, sure. so that's that's. Uh, but but there's almost this element on the on the, the school district's part to, you know, kind of kind of sweep things under the rug and and be quiet. And, yes. All right. So well. We'll put out some guidelines on what you can say at a sporting event, but we're not going to talk about the incident that that occurred. And 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 you know, and I get the, the you know that the, there's rules that, that the district has to go by and and all that. But it just like you had said earlier, if if people don't see that there's consequences to to these actions, then they just perpetuate on themselves, and and you just get more and more acts, more and more incidents. You know happening and and i think it would it would behoove the school district to be a lot more proactive and you know and and harsh and and say that these incidents you know this is what happened and this is what we're doing about it and and you know and we're you know zero tolerance we're not going to tolerate this stuff yeah i mean that was their their message but after only you know robert brown came to the school board meeting and 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 sounded the alarm and put people on notice that this is something that happened so um the police uh, at least in terms of the the incident at the football field were no, were put on notice for this um the mother of um some of the kids who were allegedly pushed down and and said the n word um to um she's going to the mother has said that she's going to push 
for charges against the 18-year-old person. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and that family as well, they came to um, the meeting of the town's anti-bias task force about two weeks back that occurred. Um, and uh, again, uh, and basically said, well, you know, the anti-bias task force, you guys need to help the the community mitigate these issues and and respond to these issues. And the town's anti-bias task force has sort of, um, there was a bit of drama with it recently um, because the the town of Riverhead, the town board appointed um, new membership and and new leadership to um, the, uh, the task force kind of abruptly um, they, they, because, removed, they removed a couple people too, right? Yeah, they removed people. They removed the the a few longtime members, including the the two co-chairs, and replaced them with um, new chair people. The councilman who's the liaison to that, uh, Ken Rothwell, he said that you know the committee or th- this uh, group, which is sort of like a town hall committee, you know, the town board appoints them and and what have you. Um, he, he said that it really isn't diverse enough. It's like all white women in the democratic party (laughs) is what he sort of said. Um, which I mean, that wasn't, um, and that's a little bit of the truth. There's a little bit of truth in that because there were a lot of white women in that group, but there were also members of the police department and there was a Hispanic member and the, the group's black memberships sort of fell off. After a, a while, people had to leave, had some commitments, and it the group really had struggled to to get a good membership. But I mean, there's sort of a um, a political background to this because the leaders of the anti-bias task force had um, criticized the town's executive order um, uh, against that uh, attempted to stop migrants um, and asylum seekers from New York City from, ro- um, from re- to relocating to Riverhead. So um, they criticized uh, the former chair, Cindy Clifford, said that this, you know, this is going to stoke rhetoric against Hispanic people that is already there in the community. I mean, She's like, just look at the Facebook comments on, you know, Riverhead Locals article about X, Y, and Z, and you'll see that, you know, there's a lot of people that uh, make assumptions about um, immigrants and asylum seekers. And I know that you guys on the show have talked about this, um, the issue before and Riverhead's executive order. So, but, so some of the so so the allegation is is, is that some of the, the anti-bias task force members were kind of being punished for speaking out against the supervisor and the town board on that issue. Yes. And that accounted for, for this re reshuffling, right? Yes. And they also, um, because the anti-bias task force traditionally had, uh, appointed its own members that have, you know, people come in interested and then they'd say to the town board, uh, well, we'd like to appoint these people and the town board will go, okay, sure. And, the anti-bias task force has done a lot of programs, um, specifically at the at the Riverhead Free Library, um, educational programs for certain, um, you know, historical months like the you know, Black History Month, the uh, MLK's birthday, 
uh, you know, certain holidays, June, uh, I don't know if they did a Juneteenth one, but um, kind of, you know, during the community and they had scheduled for uh, before this whole thing happened, a event um, with a, a woman from Waiting River, Lisa Votino, who was a, mm-hmm. a volunteer at the southern border, a, a talk about the asylum seeking process in the United States. And um, the town board basically said, well, you can't have any events if you don't clear it by us first. And there's, I think there was a concern by um, Cindy Clifford, the former co-chair when I interviewed her, and also a concern from us that this is gonna get political, um, the political influence of the town board of the all Republican town board is gonna get into this anti-bias task force. Yeah, you could very easily see how the the Republican members of the town board would nix a talk by Lisa Vettina, who's spent some time down at the southern border. Yeah, and she was going to be a perspective, and she was like a perspective member. That's what the 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 former chair was asking for her to be officially appointed. She had attended meetings. They said for you know since the beginning of this year, and. They were saying, well, we want her and other members that have come to to be appointed. So after that whole thing happened and, and the town board is appointing new members, the chairperson who was appointed, who was a member for a while since the task force was sort of revived in 2015, she resigned. Um, we've since learned another member of the task force that was reappointed, you know, from the old um task force what has also resigned um so it's sort of in this position where you know there's people there that still you know believe in the community and want to and want to help people but um it's kind of hard when the town board is looking over your shoulder i think Mm. um in a lot of these ways and you know alec getting back to the school when we talk about issues like this, I, I wonder what the school needs to do to address it. And it seems like there's two fronts that you need to approach. And one is holding students accountable and and making sure that that you're clear that when the rules are broken, something will happen and, and, and getting that message out to the student body. But then there's also an educational element where you really need to go in and sort of attack the underlying uh, yeah. ignorance that's at the heart of this. And and uh, it seems like Riverhead's had enough uh, evidence now that they've got an issue that, that those two things need to really become priorities for the school district. Well, that's what the NAACP president was saying is, you guys, we, we, cre- we helped you create this equity in action plan is what it's called for the school district. It has goals. It has a mission and it has um, specific things that the school district can do to meet those goals. And, you know, they're saying, why isn't that happening? You know, why haven't we seen that, um, you know, going on these these different um, sort of programs that they suggested, such as a uh, I believe it was an interracial group um, that that. Um, part of the uh, plan suggests a peer mentoring, peer-to-peer mentoring um, 
program so these sort of things and and engaging people in the community about the needs and cultures of the different student body because there's a huge latino student body in riverhead and there's still a you know a very significant black population I of students like, in riverhead yeah i like i like what you're uh, having a peer group and um you know going back to the fact that you know i don't think kids grow out of prejudice you know and not to oversimplify it and not to play uh child psychologist, but to get to the root of it, to sit the kid down and say, where did you get these ideas? Or why do you think you should call these people certain names? And I would expect, and my thing would be either peer pressure, or they get it from a family member. And And sit the kid down and say, why do you think like this? Where did you get these ideas? And also, I mean, it's easy for me to say, but the Riverhead School District could I'm sure they contact the parents and, and say, you can tell what kind of reaction you get from the parents. They might not, you know, they might be extremely concerned. They might be somewhat concerned. They may not be, they may believe. They may have planted this, unfortunately. You know, um, so I think that's, to, to, there's a need to find out where did you get these ideas that there these people are less than or whatever it is. Why do you, you think- can't? You can't pull it up at the roots if you don't know what the roots are. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Brian, you you touched on a very good point that the you know members of Mr. Brown's family and and AACP sort of uh, have been saying after this incident happened is that um, this this racism stems from the home and the attitudes of the parents. Uh, that's what they say. That's what they believe, yeah. and. Um, and I, I tend to agree with them. If some parent takes a nonchalant attitude to their their son or daughter's or you know behavior, then that can lead to something um, really, really horrible. Um, yeah, I know. Down the road. Yeah, it's. I mean, to not again, not to oversimplify it. Usually, it's fear based. The person mm. who is calling people names or think they're they're less than for the most part, it's either, you know, uh, fear-based or they're not, you know, we need to talk more about the immigrant situation, why these people are, you know, coming here in droves because they have a terrible situation there. And the more clarity, the more we talk about it, the less we might jump to conclusions and pick us. It's not a black and white issue as far as overall, you know. And I think Alec made the point very early on in this conversation this isn't just endemic to Riverhead. This is a national problem. Absolutely. And it comes up, you know, it rears its head in individual communities. And it seems like uh, you got to work to deal with it. You've got to respond to it when it does. You can't pretend it's not there. You can't ignore it. You can't shrug it off. These are these are important incidents. So you got to talk about it. Yeah, it gets messy, yeah. but you can you got to get in there and you got to. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what a lot of people in the community are saying. And that's what the anti-bias task force has now. The new anti-bias task force has committed itself to, um, you know, uh, talk to the school district and do programs in the school. The Eastern and double, uh, Long Island NAACP has also extended their hand saying they want to help. So um, hopefully that this all ends in I mean, not necessarily a happy ending, but 
like hopefully this these incidents spark some good in the community and some change in the community um and that these incidents you know as few and far between as they seem to be um just stop outright <laughs> and obviously everybody wants that right and you'd hope Chris, you had something to say yeah i mean i uh <clears throat> continuing along with brian's point this stuff starts in the home and I think we put a lot of, I think it's a heavy lift for a school district. I understand they have a role, but think about, and I hope I don't blow this too far afield and I'm sure our moderators will bring me back if I do, but Sag Harbor and the Yonder um, bags for cell phones, right? I saw that as kind of like in lieu of parenting, <laughs> the school is going, you, and but you can't, there's no bag there's no racism bag that you can check at the door when you go into school. And so, you know, it kids are learning these things. They may be learning them in their home, but they also may be learning them from what they're, what they're looking at um, in social media and stuff like that. And it's a very, very strong tide of ignorance currently uh, that school districts, families have to push back against. And, it's uh it's a lot more difficult uh than than the yonder bag so to speak you know it may be too much to ask the schools to fix it but they gotta try i mean that's yeah, where you have to have conversations this is this is true yeah that's where well, you're going to and, and again they need to be open and upfront about what they're doing to address individual incidents i mean maybe they can't solve the problem but they need to they need again they need they need the, the zero tolerance policy and to let people know that when these incidents occur they're going to come down with a with a heavy hammer and and um and 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 meet out some 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 punishment and you know and all that and move forward i just want to i'll wrap it by by saying i think it's worth pointing out that in a situation like that it's important to get the word out to the to the public about what's actually happening. So Alec, you and you guys at Riverhead Local have done a great job of staying on top of that issue and keeping it in the public eye, which is important. I think that's part of the equation. We can't pretend these things aren't there. When they happen, you've got to talk them through and you've got to have a constructive conversation. And I think you guys have been leading that conversation up there and tip of the hat to you. And thank you, Joe. Yeah, kudos. There's some people that aren't as appreciative of you. Yes, that don't want to hear this these sort of things going on, and um, and, and I think and that's the you. price you pay. I think that's that's part of the price you pay for for having those important conversations. Is you get a certain segment of the population that just doesn't want to hear it, but that's all the more reason why I think it's important. You guys are doing what you're doing, so stay the course up there. Absolutely. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists this week are Alec Lewis, who is with Riverhead Local, Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM, and Christopher Ganjemi from the East Hampton Star. And Chris, I wanted to talk to you. You know, you wrote an article this week about uh, a subject that comes up from time to time with dark skies leg legislation, that kind of thing. The idea of light pollution um you found some new possible reasons to be concerned about light pollution particularly on the south fork what did you find out 
Yeah, and it's a it's it's a hard turn off of uh, racism. So uh, yes, it's, it's, <laughs> but these transitions are never easy. But we've got a lot of we've got a lot of issues in. You know, we, we've got to move Sorry. move to different. Um, uh, Colleen Miller and Aaron Rice uh, wrote a report recently synthesizing other reports, and you know, I, I think that people understand now that light pollution is a problem. Well, maybe they understand that light pollution is a problem for human health, you know, uh, birds, insects, a lot of wildlife, but they've also, you know, shown that it's a problem for marine life. And East Hampton town has over a hundred miles of, of coastline. And if you, you know, uh, another, uh, planning, uh, a ZBA thing that came up this week is on Sammy's beach road. They want to build this 5,000 square foot house, which in Hamptons speak isn't huge but it's glass and so you get you know even something as simple as building a house now is 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 creating you know this uh, sky glow um and uh light issue here and uh in the last few years especially during covid i think uh, most people who live here full time have seen this landscape lighting um trend continue and it's uh, really having an effect on our flora and fauna. What's the specific effect that it has on marine life? I'm curious about that. Well, one local uh, marine life uh, situation we have is the horseshoe crab. And in the spring, they base their spawning on on the moon, uh, on moon cycles, two moon cycles specifically. Um, and I think it's in May. I could be wrong. Um, and when there's all of this artificial light, these animals that are living, you know, in the darkness, basically, are, are having a hard time. You know, it, the moon can get washed out um, when there's a lot of sky glow. They don't know. Is it a full moon or, you know, it's hard to get yourself into the mind of a horseshoe crab. But, <laughs> you know, what is what does it look like from below? And when all of a sudden this situation, which forever has been dark half of the day and then light, you know, the other half suddenly is more and more light. They're having a hard time knowing when when is that moon there for me? You know, when when am I going to to mate and spawn? And it's not just well, yes, I mean, that that's the marine uh, piece there. They they. In the study, they recognize that there's a lot of work to be done with this. There's not that many species-specific studies that have been done. The most famous one is the sea turtles in Florida, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, females need a dark beach to come and lay their eggs, first of all. If they don't go and lay their eggs because it's too light, they don't lay eggs. Um, if they do manage to lay their eggs... Then when those eggs hatch, the baby turtles are turning around to look for the moon glow, because again, it's time to the moon cycle, mm. on the water, and they're supposed to head that way. But when they're born, and then all of a sudden you see artificial light from a city or, or you know whatever it is, they might move towards that light instead, and often do. And they say millions of sea turtles every year die because they are being directed towards artificial light. Wow. Um, you know, 
Cornell Lab of Ornithology, to bring it back to birds for a second, has done a, a lot of work. We're about to be in the main portion of fall migration for birds. And so they've done these lights out campaigns. This is a global effort where cities dim their lights or turn off their lights during, you know, five to 10 nights during these migration periods could have a huge positive effect on migrating birds because they're also drawn to light. Um, one thing that they've been able to quantify because of the uh, the 9-11 tribute of light in the city, they've watched birds get kind of sucked into those light beams, kind of like a spaceship, you know, um, sucking up a person. In a way, the birds may be migrating through, they see those light beams, they get drawn into them. And they said over a million birds have died, you know, just during those light events because they wow. get sucked into the lights and they fly and they hit buildings and they're found the next day littered all over the sidewalks. Wow. I That's wasn't aware of that. Yeah. It's an underreported, underreported phenomenon. Um, Chris, East Hampton Town in particular, but South Hampton Town as well, um, has taken measures to try and address these things right they there have been a lot of measures that dark, have been dark, about dark, dark sky dark like skies and and trying to limit the kinds of light pollution it's it's a it's an ongoing battle though right i mean it's it's with commercial lighting with street lighting with house lighting these are all things that contribute but the towns yeah. have been sort of attentive to the issue yeah they're they're trying i would say i i, I spoke with uh, susan harder who is a, a dark skies advocate and for example east hampton town I, I think they just changed a lot of their street lights um and kelvin is a big growing part of the discussion kelvin basically tells you the the color temperature of a light so maybe 2000 kelvin might be more like a candlelight versus some other higher number of kelvins like 4000 5000 you know is more like a fluorescent shop light that blue light um and i think they've been disappointed that the town chose a higher i think 2700 kelvin for their their street lighting when they were hoping it would be i think they suggest 2200 and i think we've all now had the experience too of a lot of these new headlights when you're driving at night you know these very blue intense lights coming at you that's kelvin that's a high kelvin headlight coming at you good maybe for the person who's driving they have some more visibility but bad for the person who's driving into them i mean that's the whole conversation you can actually feel those on your eyeballs oh. sometimes i feel like it feels like somebody's pressing on my eyeballs when i see some of those headlights no question yeah and and you know my 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 daughter's car actually has them it's a subaru 20 2019 subaru and one thing i've noticed is that the it's a very sharp demarcation of light as well so for me i don't like it as much because you can see in that light itself but then outside of it there's huge shadows which is another argument that the the light sky um dark night uh dark sky advocates make is that brighter isn't always better right. and a lot of people are worried about security security lighting doesn't necessarily mean brighter lighting it just means smarter lighting and having a big bright circle um creates a lot of shadows around it so a it's an interesting about, conversation 
a lot of it's about down focus too, right? I mean, a, a lot of what the dark skies folks have have been focused on is getting the the lights so that they're not spilling out into the sky. That you can focus the lights in a more downward way, and you don't get quite as much light pollution. It's still there, but it's not it's not as bad. Yeah, I mean, and that's yeah, right. All lighting isn't bad. It's just a matter of making it smarter, shielding lights. Uh, directing them properly, having timers, turning them off. This time of year, a lot of people are out of here now, but their lights are still coming on every single night. Those landscape lighting, you know, they're on a, a, a timer and they're going on even though nobody's going to be in those houses for months. Hmm. Interesting. Well, the fact that it's impacting the the sea life is is just another reason to keep this on everybody's radar, I guess, going forward. You know, talking about making, here's a transition for you, Chris. This is a little bit better. Um, <laughs> we can transition to a story that we did this week, Bill, um, about the Southampton School District. And they're looking at introducing uh, a couple of new vocational programs, which as, a, as an aside, I have to say, all of the school districts locally have done a really nice job of branching out their offerings and, and embracing the idea of some vocational training as well. I know Hampton Bays has done really well in the hospitality industry. There's the schools are working to try and create pathways to jobs for local mm -hmm. students who might not be looking at college as their only alternative that they may want to do some other things. So Southampton School District is considering now a new curriculum uh, a couple of new programs, but one of them is really interesting. It's called Clamming and Shellfish Harvesting a Business would be the name of the class. It's basically that the the um, the district has a class on uh, maritime mariculture uh, businesses. They have like a fish. They're they're raising fish and they're they're sort of focused on that. This would expand that model out and work with kids, boys and girls, who might have an interest in going into shell fishing as a business. I think that's kind of a cool idea that, that um, it's a, obviously shell fishing was a standard uh, job out here on the East End for, for so many decades. It's waned a bit recently, but there are so many efforts to try and bolster the shellfish population. Um, having more kids involved as professionals in that effort, I think is a, is a, is just a, a noble effort. I think it's a great idea for the school district. Yeah, I mean, I, I as long as they couple it with like a water quality uh, course as well, because uh, <laughs> the septic systems out here, I'm not sure if you know why are the shellfish in such dire straits. You know, is it is it because of lack of interest, or is it because a lot of them can't make it? You know, I don't mm -hmm. know. And so, I know that. We've had some success in Shinnecock Bay with using shellfish as a way to address the water quality too. Um, it's it's a very interesting, complicated relationship. Is, is, this, is this program more about um, shellfish farming rather rather than than? Um, I, I guess there's a, a historical element to it to you know to teach people a history of, of the baymen and. And all that, but it's it's more about how to how to create a a business with um, with shellfish farming, which is um, you know has has two two forks to it that 
you know, number one, it, it, it can be a good economic business, but as Joe, as you pointed out, it, it's also really good for the bays. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what the schools need to do is to look at all of these different vocations. And it's, for instance, with the hospitality, it's not just about training kids to be waiters. It's about training kids to go on to a management type level when you're, when you're talking about the hospitality industry, that those are career jobs. It's not just jobs. It's about careers in those industries. And I would think it's the same thing with the shellfish industry. You can make a career in the shellfish industry, but you need to know how to run a business mm. in addition to all the stuff you need to know about shellfish. That does need to start at the, the, the high school level. And Do you know, and, do you know sorry, Joe, whether, that, whether that's enough or, or is, is this kind of a course that bounces off into a, a college career? I don't know. I suspect that it sets you up to go into more courses as you leave, um, but it gives you a foundation. And yeah. I think part of it is, and you know, I'm going to make a terrible pun here, but it's planting the seeds of <laughs> creating, a, creating a, a, maybe it's more planting bugs in this case, uh, to, to, to have an interest to go deeper into a career. Um, I think that's just as important because I think with high school kids, they're forming their opinions about what they might want to do uh, at that age and, and giving them, opening them, uh, their minds up to the various options. That's, I think it's terrific. And, and it's something the school should be doing. That's well, happening. And they want to do it too. in cooperation with, with BOCES, right? So it's part of the, yeah. the BOCES uh, vocational program, which, um, you know, like um, like the culinary, you know, program in, in, in Riverhead. and. Um, you know, and all that gives people that advance on a on a career and gives them a path um, forward. And and these are these are kids that may not, um, you know, want to want to go to college or, or whatever and are, are looking for, a you know, a lead into um, to a more hands on career. A, a good example of success in this, by the way, is that a couple of years ago, back in 2019, the district started working with BOCES on a building trades and carpentry program, which again, this is a legitimate career that that it's a career path that's that's essential on the South Fork mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily require and, and a, a college and a lucrative career on, Absolutely. on the South Fork. <laughs> and they're seeing benefits from that now. They're starting to see students um, going into carpentry and making a career of it. So uh, after a couple of years, you start to see the benefits of these things. So it, it's, I just think it's a really innovative idea and I'm mm -hmm. glad to see local schools. I think for a time it became the narrative that only academic success, as far as getting into college, that was how you measured success for teenagers coming out of, of high school. And I just think that's outdated. There are so many careers that, that we need. On the South Fork, too, by the way, that's the other important part of it is you need carpenters and you need folks in, in the, the shell fishing industry and you need folks in the hospitality industry. Uh, there are good jobs uh, for them. And there's no reason not to recognize that as early as high school and get kids thinking about that. I, I, and, I listened to an interesting uh, podcast was last week or the, or the week before I uh, was the Daily it was New York Times podcast and they were talking about um does does college actually pay off anymore mm. for students with with the high high cost of tuition and the, and the high 
um, the high loans that you know that that people have, kids have to have to take out, and parents have to take out. It's not like it was fifty years ago, or or you know, or or whenever, where where college education guaranteed you a certain success in 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 life, and now you have you have students who are recognizing that taking on all that debt, uh, you know, right away as you're coming out of college. Um, can can be a disadvantage um, where where it was always an advantage before, and and that a lot of um, students are choosing not to 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 go to college, um, you know, recognizing that that it's no longer a guarantee of of you know a successful career. Just just to go on to what you said, uh, back to what you said, Joe Riverhead High School, um, and recently for this school year, they added agricultural science. To there you their go. curriculum yeah. and that's sort of like uh you know to inspire people to continue the farming legacy that we have here on eastern long island and particularly in riverhead which has a lot of the farmland on on not just the east end but on long island and also they added um important classes um for english new language students they added a computer science class for them so the the courses taught uh you can learn python for for Spanish speaking students, so you're you're helping the students that are are in a population um, that is sort of you're coming into the school district and everything's taught in English that that might be disadvantaged, but you're you're helping them still grow these more advanced skills and 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 have um, maybe something that they'd be interested in pursuing in college um, down the line. And also, they they also added uh, courses for theater performance and production, oh. and um, computer game design, uh, and they also increased their marine science course as well. That's all great stuff. And and you know, I think about um, it's it's worth noting. By the way, the other thing that's happening is there's a push for a local Southampton College of the Trades. There are some folks that are trying to get something set up locally, and they have a, an idea of setting up a kind of a program at the Stony Brook Southampton College campus. If the, if Stony Brook will agree to it, um, that has some legs, and it's got there's a lot of people, including some local elected officials, who are really behind that. And I just keep thinking of a student who has an interest in something like carpentry. And you can get that training, a little bit of it in high school, and also learn a little bit about running a business maybe as part of the, the training. And when you come out of high school and you can go into an apprenticeship program, within a couple of years, you could be an independent carpenter running your own business. And as you said, Bill, lucrative. These, this, yeah. you know, these, are, these are people who are really very much in demand. Um, it's, it's just it's an acknowledgement of the reality, the economic realities, but it's also just, uh, I think, just smart education. I think, I think the, the school districts here are doing a nice job of staying up to date on that. This is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists this week are Christopher Ganjemi of the East Hampton Star, Brian Cosgrove of WLIW, and Alec Lewis of Riverhead Local. Chris, real quick, I wanted to, to mention, talk about hyper-local stories, but this is kind of interesting. So the tank on uh, along Montauk Highway at the former, uh, no, there, it's not a former, it's still a, 
Is, is it VFW. still a, still VFW? I couldn't remember if it was Legion or VFW. So where'd it go? Well, I don't know exactly where it went. They said it's going up to an American Legion upstate. And uh, it's a funny um, story. Well, not funny, but that restaurant there, which I, what is it? Laundry, maybe? I don't know. Um, Yeah, it used to be, that was also the VFW. So it almost feels like the VFW is a a little bit of retreat. You know, they had that front building (laughs) and the front building went away and it became a uh, restaurant and they had the tank there for 30 years. Now the tank's gone. And now they just have like the little, little uh, back in the spot in the back. And, you know, they, their membership is down, you know, they went from 300 something members uh, 30 years ago. Now they told me they have hundred something and uh, many of them are not active. So it's the tank left, but I also feel like that's a story about a certain segment of the community, which is uh, gone or leaving and um, aging out. Are they they aging out or is it? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of a lot of aging out. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that uh, 60 ton uh, operational tank uh was uh taken and loaded up on a, a truck and gone mm. uh, it was really interesting to talk to them about it they had to paint it once every three years or so it was a big deal they uh you know high you know had people come in to to do that work and smoky anderson who's a, a member of the vfw he was kind of funny about it. He was like, you know, when the he was the commander of the VFW when the tank came in. And he said, when it came here, we got calls and people were angry about it. And then all of a sudden it's gone and everybody's like, we're losing this great landmark. <laughs> it's and always it reminds me of 7-Eleven in, in Sag Harbor, you know. Absolutely. It was very much a landmark, so sorry to see it go. Brian, we have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to save some time so we could talk about the Ameri- uh, the Sag Harbor Music Festival that's mm. taking place this weekend. This is an event, I think, in the entire calendar that's probably nearest to your heart, right? Well, yeah, I think it's um, it's great. Yeah, it started on uh, Thursday night, as it usually does on a Thursday. It runs through uh, this Sunday, which is already the 1st of October. Uh, we're going to be there. I'll put a little plug in for the station that we're on right now. Um, we're going to be there from uh, noon to 3, broadcasting live. But... You know, it, it as we were talking about all these subjects, great subjects, great show today, um, you know, concerning things about racism and about, you know, the uh, the shellfish and light pollution and everything and, and kids getting this really, I think, um, ties the community together in, in a lot of different ways. Um, me being and I'm sure all you guys, too. I love music. Um, the fact is, is that this is folks performing original music. And nothing against the fact that I have no, you know, everybody starts out playing their favorite band or their play, their favorite singer-songwriter, uh, but, you know, and tribute bands are through the roof and good for them. It's good business. It's keeping a lot of the theaters going. A lot of folks want to go see music they're familiar with. But this is original music. Um, a majority of these folks are from Long Island or, or from the area. So right there, that's huge. You know, it's um, being in the music programming business, you know, it's hard to introduce people to music that they're not familiar with. You know, chances are, if you put 
you know, somebody's favorite CD next to them and then put a brand new CD of maybe even somebody they know, chances are most people are going to grab the CD they know and they want familiar music. And I understand that. But it's nice to go out and challenge yourself. And also, not only is it original music that's happening at the Sag Harbor American Music Festival this weekend, and you can go to sagharbormusic.org to find the information and the rundown, but it's all different genres of music, which help with understanding different cultures, which, which brings us together. It solidifies the fact of being from Long Island, right? You know, I mean, it's such a, a beautiful place that we live in and we can all, and it's that whole thing about community, you know, that whole thing about community getting together. Music is such a spiritual thing. It brings people together. Uh, it, it, it knocks down, you know, racial bias. It uh, it opens you up to new ideas. Uh, it can open you up to yourself, you know, emotional things. And, you know, and not to go too much on and sound like kumbaya about this stuff, but it is, I think it's very powerful. And finally, that you know, we were talking about kids and businesses and not just kids, you know, adults are doing changing things that they do uh, for a living because they realize they don't like what they do or there's no opportunity. But, you know, think about some kid who's going to go there this weekend and see somebody and then see some guy working a, a mixing board and say, what's that guy doing? Mm -hmm. That looks pretty cool. I'd like to mix music or, you know, I, I, I want to play guitar. Ma, can, you know, can, can we swing it? Can we, you know, can we get me a guitar or, you know, it's, um, no it's, question. It's, it's going to yeah. plant, it's going to plant that in a lot of minds, a lot of young minds. Great exactly. event. It's yeah. this weekend, along with South, uh, Southampton Fest is happening this weekend. We yeah. should note that the weather postponed a couple of other events, the San Janeiro Festival in Hampton Bays, the 375th anniversary in East Hampton. Those have been rescheduled for the coming weeks. So we'll talk about that coming up soon. We're out of time. Uh, I want to thank Brian Cosgrove of WLIWFM, Christopher Gangemi of the East Hampton Star, and Alec Lewis of Riverhead Local. Thank you, guys. And I also thank my co-host, Bill Sutton. Uh, we will be back here next week again with Behind Headlines. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.